0: Morning, church. That's about the extent of my Dutch. Well, my name is Derek Bass. Um, We've been calling Liberty home, my family and me, for about the last three years. And uh, it's a joy when I have the opportunity to get up and share the word. it's just a joy to see how the Lord is continuing to grow this church. Uh, we are not continuing this morning the sermon series on the Holy Spirit. Um, you see the uh, sermon outlines in your seats. Um, and if you're familiar with this psalm, you might be thinking to yourself, man, Matt gave you a, a, a tough passage to preach. Am I getting, are you guys hearing reverb out there or is it just me? you hearing it? Okay, I'm here. I don't know if it's a mic up here. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, Matt didn't assign me this passage. I, I willingly chose this passage. And, and part of the reason why I'm preaching from Psalm 137 is I teach locally at a seminary here, and I teach Hebrew, and I teach Old Testament theology. And I try to, I'm trying to teach my students that the whole Bible is ultimately pointing to Jesus. And I kind of play devil's advocate with my students Or at least, if I were sitting in their shoes, um, I would be saying, okay, Dr. Bass, preach Jesus from this passage. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning, is see how Psalm 137 points to Christ. So what I want to do is I want to read it first. I'm not sure if the words will appear. There you go. Um, I will read. The words are up on the screen behind me. Then we'll pray and dive in. Let's look now at Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there, our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I like that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your grace. I pray for it in need as the preacher this morning, asking, Lord, that you would speak through me. We pray, Father, for the hearers that you would help us to be attentive to this, your holy word. Help us, Lord, to understand this passage and its context. Father, help help us to be ministered to by your word. Lord, help us to set Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth above our highest joy. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Have you ever walked up on a conversation and you catch just a few words or somebody's response and without knowing the context their interaction, you could go any number of directions with it. It happened to me actually before church. I was chatting with another American about American football. We were talking about different positions and there's one position called the tight end. And another guy (laughs) walks by and said, you must be talking about American football because I just heard you talk say the, 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 the phrase tight end and I'd be a little bit concerned if you weren't talking about American football. So it was kind of funny. <laughs> but I think we'd all agree with the reality that words, even sentences, have meaning in context. For instance, the simple sentence, that board is bad, can mean multiple things given the context. If I'm at the lumber yard or hama or praxis looking for fence boards, then that board is bad means quite literally, quite bluntly, I do not want that board. It's no good. It's bad. It could be warped. It could be broken. But I don't want it a part of my fence in my garden. However, in another context, for instance, if the board in view is made of fiberglass and the context is the beach and not the lumberyard, then that board is bad means, dude, that's an awesome surfboard. Right? We've entered into a different world of words where bad can all of a sudden mean good and based based on the context and based on the intonation of the speaker's voice. Why am I talking like this? Well, quite clearly, because the words there at the end of Psalm 137.9 are perhaps some of the most difficult words in all of the Bible. Heck, even when we understand it in, in, in light of the whole of the context of the Psalm and the whole of the scriptures, it's still difficult words. It's verses like this that people will point to and say, I could never believe in the God of the Bible. But the reality is, if you think that God or the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, which I don't, or if you think God is behaving badly here, then you'll struggle deeply with the words of Jesus, who actually spoke more about hell than he did heaven, more about judgment than he did the new heavens and the new earth, or again, the revelation. Of John, who describes Jesus coming back on a war horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, stamping out the rebellion against him. You see, in understanding these words from Psalm 137 and all of 137, we want to first understand them in the context of the psalm, its genre. We want to look at the larger context of the Psalter, the whole Old Testament, and ultimately how this is pointing to and finds fulfillment in Christ. Now, you have your outlines there on the seat. The the main idea that this passage, I think, in light of the whole Bible is pressing to is this. It's the theme or thesis statement up there. And it goes like this. Living in exile and longing for the new Jerusalem, we sing and we pray for our Lord in Christ to put all things right and usher in his promised and consummated kingdom. Uh, This answers so many of the questions we have about justice, the things that we wrestle with, the things that we see in the world. We all look out there and we know that things are not as they should be. We don't agree on the solution, but the Bible does lay out a solution for us. Look again at verses 1 through 3, and you'll see that in your outline under the heading, Lamenting for Jerusalem in Exile. Verses 1 through 3. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So, so Zion is another word for Jerusalem. It's wrapped up with God's promises to David and God's promises to dwell in this city of Jerusalem. On the willows there in Babylon, we hung up our lyres, for there in Babylon, our captors required of us songs. And our tormentor's mirth saying, sing us one of those songs of Zion. So this psalm is commonly considered a communal lament. Among the 150 psalms, there are various types, and lamentation is perhaps the one that occurs more than any other. You have individual laments, communal laments, You can think of individual laments like Psalm 13, where David is crying out, how long, O Lord? Or in Psalm 22 that David cries out and later Jesus takes up on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are moments where the psalmist, the worshiper, is in angst, he's in anguish, he's facing difficulty, trials, nothing seems to be going right. Even their life could be hanging in the balance. I really love this type of psalm. I really love this type of psalm. If you ever... If you've ever thought that God doesn't care or or that you can't be real with God, warts and all, then then you don't know the psalms. The psalms are glorious as they give voice to every emotion, everything we can be feeling. You know, maybe if you're a Christian here this morning, you you might be going through a difficult time and you're having trouble voicing that frustration to the Lord. Well, this psalm and many like it are just calling us to take them to the Lord. Indeed, later David in Psalm 32.3 describes the effect on us when we don't do that. He, He writes, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. If you're hurting, if you're broken, bring those things to God. So verses 1 through 3 give us the situation of this lament. Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, has been judged by God through the Babylonians, and they're in exile. Just a a quick overview. When humanity originally rebelled against God in the the garden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, he, he exiled them east of Eden. In judgment, they were sent out. Death, curse through sin entered into the world. That was not a part of God's original creation. God immediately promises a redeemer to come. He calls later in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he calls Abraham out of Ur of Chaldea, which would become Babylon. There's a dynamic when he calls Abraham. He's calling him to be a a conduit, a means of blessing to all the nations through Abraham and his offspring. Blessing would come, reversing the curse of sin and death. God promises Abraham a great, vast offspring, and he promises him a land. So he promises him genealogy and geography, progeny and property. At this point, Abraham's in his 80s, his wife's been barren, they got no kids, no prospects, But God's saying, I'm going to make you like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the heavens. His grandson, Jacob, becomes Israel, has 12 sons. Them and their family, at the end of Genesis, end up in Egypt because of a famine. So 70 now from Abraham end up in Egypt. Exodus begins, and that 70 has become a vast multitude They're persecuted by Pharaoh. God comes down and he delivers his people gloriously, magnificently, he brings them to Sinai, he enters into covenant with them, like he had entered into covenant with Abraham. Now he brings all of Abraham's offspring, over a million by this point, into covenant with him. He's calling them to rejoice in his presence, to find joy in him, to bask in his presence and in his provision. The covenant warns through, through the threat of curses. If they disobey, if they go after other gods, there will be judgment. If they obey and they find their delight in Yahweh, if they glory in him, it will be blessing. They will enjoy him in the land. But if they worship him or try to worship him like the people in the land worship their false gods... And they whore after those gods, and they will be judged. And indeed, Deuteronomy twenty-eight sixty-eight is ramping up toward this threat of exile. If it comes to this, if they're unrepentant, he will judge them. He will reverse all of the saving work that he's done in the Exodus, and they will march backward into Egypt. Or in, in, in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel marched into Assyria. And then in 586, the Babylonians come. Because of disobedience, and they destroy the southern kingdom. This southern kingdom, the southern kingdom, was what was left of the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, the one that God had made the promises to, of a never-ending dynasty. David and his men had conquered Jerusalem. It was the place of God's presence. The Ark was there. Solomon later built the temple. This. All this is building within the scriptures where Jerusalem and Zion is the dwelling place of God. It's the dwelling place of the king whom God promised would always have a son to sit on the throne. And in 722 BC when the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom, they came to destroy Jerusalem. They had wiped out many of the neighboring towns around Jerusalem and they had encircled and laid siege to Jerusalem. They were mocking and threatening Jerusalem, saying things like, We're gonna make you drink your own urine, Um, lots of lots of ancient Near Eastern trash talk. And yet God miraculously wipes out the Assyrian army that night in their camp. It was a miracle. Uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem didn't defend themselves. God just showed up and miraculously wiped out the army, and then they fled back to Assyria. And so this began a thinking for Israelites. No one can wipe out Jerusalem. No one can wipe out Zion. God will never allow the temple to be destroyed. He'll, He'll never allow the king from David's line to be taken captive. And yet that's exactly what happened. Now they're in exile. And now their captors are saying, sing us one of those Zion songs. Just going to read real quick Psalm 48. It's a Zion psalm. So it's a psalm that's praising God for the city of Jerusalem. And just listen to this. Because this is what their tormentors are saying, sing us one of those. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth mount zion in the far north the city of the great king within her citadels god has made himself known as a fortress for behold the kings assembled they came they came on together as soon as they saw it as soon as they saw jerusalem they were astounded they were in panic They took flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. And we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. I'm going to stop there. You get the idea. The picture is that Jerusalem is impenetrable, inviolable. It cannot be taken. And yet it's been taken. They were marched, many of them naked, away from Jerusalem with nothing but ashes and rubble behind them. That's what they saw. They remember the smells, they remember the pain. And their captors say, Sing us one of those strong Zion songs. It's a mock, it's more than salt in the wound. things are not always as they seem. See, God is working in and through the judgment of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. This wasn't the end. The scriptures had been clear that God would judge them. And yet that he would work through judgment of salvation in which he would bring them back to his presence. That he would give them new hearts. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. He would circumcise their hearts in a restoration and a renewal. And he would enable them to love him with all Their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So things are not always as they seem. As they hear the mocking. As they're ridiculed. No doubt with the idea that, yeah, Yahweh is stronger, huh? We sing that song, don't we? Our God is stronger. God, you are greater than any other, or whatever. I know I'm not getting the words quite right. Worship team, sorry about that. But you can believe that the, the Jews in Babylon weren't feeling that. They're feeling like Marduk is stronger. And Yahweh had been impotent. But again, things are not always as they seem. Christian, as we think about the Babylonians mocking the Jews here in verses 1 through 3, recall the religious leaders and the passers by mocking Jesus on the cross. He healed others. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's really the son of God, if you're really the son of God, come down. Come down. Save yourself. And you remember Jesus taking up Psalm 22, 1 on the cross. He probably sang the whole psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was real. Jesus was forsaken of the Father. He's dying as a wrath-bearing substitute. But you read on to the end of the psalm. Christ will lead in praise the congregation of the brethren. He'll fulfill God's mission, the mission of the Davidic king to subdue and to save the nations. So verses 1 through 3 paint a bleak, desperate picture of exile, of the mocking and the torment at the hands of their captors in Babylon. Looking at verses 4 through 6, it's under the heading of, commanding ourselves to sing of Jerusalem. So this gives us the right response to the situation in verses 1 through 3. Verse 4 reads, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, when the psalmist says, "How can we sing?" What's at issue here? Is the, is the issue geography? Like, okay, we actually we have to be in Zion if we're going to sing a Zion song. We can't sing a Zion song and ba- I don't think that's the point. Is the point broken promises? Are they wrestling with this idea that, that, that Yahweh is too weak to keep his promises? The Lord promised to protect Jerusalem. We thought Jerusalem was, was impenetrable. Are the gods of Babylon stronger than Yahweh? Again, the tormentors would seem to be indicating so. But the answer to this question, how can we sing, comes in verses 5 and 6, this oath that we must sing. How can we sing? The answer is to make sure that we sing. The right hand is for strumming the instrument, as Michal did so lovely earlier. The tongue, my tongue, he's talking about, is the tongue that God has given him to declare praise. I mean, how do you feel when life is not going your way? Do you feel like praising the Lord? Maybe I'm the only one in the house this morning, but I don't wake up every morning just like, all right, I'm gonna grab my Bible and pray and read. I just feel this praise welling up in me. Even sometimes when we're singing in here, and it's like, I love you, Lord. I'm really, I'm actually singing more like, Lord, I wanna love you. I wanna love you. I'm not quite feeling it, Lord. But given the situation and this, this adamant commitment, this curse he's actually calling down on his right hand and upon his tongue if he forgets Jerusalem, this is a living by faith. This, a living by faith in God when, when when faith in God seems most hopeless, most far-fetched. How can we sing triumphant Yahweh Zion Psalms when Zion is no more. Think about the early followers of Jesus. How can they be singing praise when Jesus is still in the tomb? Or how about church? How about us? How can we be singing praise while we we wait for his return? As we, the church, can feel so impotent, so powerless at times to actually affect change in our world. Or when churches like recently in Sri Lanka, are being wiped out by terrorists. You can feel like, Where's, where are you, God? Where's the justice? The answer to the contradiction of exile, to its disillusionment, is to sing. Despite the how can we sing, the psalmist goes from the first person plural, the communal lament, to first person singular, if I forget. If I don't remember, again, what he's doing is he's calling down a curse on himself. If he fails to remember Jerusalem, if he doesn't exalt Jerusalem over his highest joy, if I don't exalt Jerusalem over my highest joy, you see the priority that he's putting in line here. What are your highest joys? I know as a father, I have quite a bit of joy in my children. I find quite a bit of joy in my wife. I I really find quite a bit of joy in my my teaching. I love what God's called me to do. It's, It's a blast. I find tremendous joy in seeing graduates go back to well, 12 graduates going back to 11 different nations to preach the gospel. That's pretty awesome. Uh, find lots of joy in that. So what I say this morning that I'm setting Jerusalem over everything is my highest joy. And you may say, well, Derek, I don't know that it's necessarily calling us to. I think it is. Because what is the psalmist calling them to? Hey, remember Jerusalem that's an ash heap now that's like rubble? Oh, yeah, set that as your highest joy. Is that what he's doing? I don't think that's what he's doing. Sorry, my glasses are sliding down my nose because of the sweat. (laughs) Is that what he's doing? I don't think that's what he's doing. No. Is he saying, do you remember the really awesome temple that Solomon built some of you old guys? Do you remember that thing? Oh, the good old days, set that above your highest joy. It's not what he's doing. He's writing somewhere between 586 and 538 B.C. He's got Isaiah. He's got all the prophets that are talking about not the, the, the Jerusalem that was, but the Jerusalem that will be, the Zion that will be. In fact, the 66, books of, uh, 66 chapters of Isaiah, they can feel a little overwhelming at times. It's a real simple message. It vacillates back and forth, back and forth, between the Jerusalem that is in Isaiah's day and the Jerusalem that will be. You can see it beautifully if you just read chapter 1 and then chapter 65 and 66. Jerusalem, that is in Isaiah's day, is a whore. They have left the Lord and they are worshiping false gods, and it's playing out in their behavior and their morals. They're like Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaiah says. But then you flip to Isaiah 65 and 66, and the language is distinctly similar to Revelation 21 and 22 of the new heavens and the new earth, a new Jerusalem, a city that is itself the whole of God's future dwelling place with his people, with no sin, with no death, forever and ever and ever. And, And I believe this is what the psalmist is calling them to set as their highest joy. We're not going back. I'm not going to sing a song about what was. I'm singing a song about what will be what's going to be. The prophet is calling them to sing the promise of God. Don't trust and believe only what your eyes can see. Believe, trust, and sing the glorious promises of God. Jerusalem was the city where the Lord dwelt with his people. But again, when we fast forward to Revelation 21 and 22, And he says, I see a new heavens and a new earth coming down out of heaven. Well, that's weird. And then he goes on to describe the new Jerusalem. The the whole thing is this holy of holies, where the glory of the Lord will will illumine the whole of it, where there'll be no sin, there'll be no death, no hurt, no pain. Verses 4 through 6 aren't nostalgic. The psalmist isn't pining for the good old days. Rather, these words seem to tap into the wider context of the blessings and curses and Yahweh's promise of salvation through judgment in which the latter end of Jerusalem will be far more glorious than the former glories. But how does that come about? We see it in verses 7 and 9, pleading for the justice and salvation of Jerusalem. Verses 7 and 9, remember Oh, Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. So that would be the day when Jerusalem was sacked. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to the foundations. I mean, this is, this is presenting the situation as if Edom is like up on the hill just watching this go down. You know, they've got their popcorn. You know, they've got their big finger, number one. You know, whatever you take to the sporting event, cheer. they're cheering on the Babylonians. They're cheering on the Babylonians. So remember I mentioned Jacob earlier who becomes Israel, who has the 12 sons, the 12 tribes. Well, Jacob's brother was Esau. Edom comes from Esau. So there's been hatred between these two for a while, and they're praising it. Well, God had promised, and we'll see, God had promised judgment on them. I'll keep going, verses 8 through 9 now, Babylon. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Now it would be easy, I think, to read this and feel like the psalmist and the community is just being vindictive and they're wanting revenge. But I don't think that's the whole story. Uh, For instance, um, in Jeremiah 49, 12, the Lord promised regarding Edom. Here it is. For thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 49, 12, if those... He's talking to Edom, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. See, so the psalmist is tapping into and praying the promises of God. And then we see him blessing or pronouncing a blessing toward the hands who will be the means of judging Babylon. The the judgment described here, the nastiness of it, is typical in the ancient Near East when peoples would destroy other peoples. In fact, this is what Babylon had done to Jerusalem. But he says, happy, happy is the one who seizes your little ones. I mean, we're used to hearing this language like in Psalm 1-1, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners. But to have it applied to the, the, the judging hands that would do to Babylon what they had done to us doesn't feel quite right. But again, I think if we read these words as the psalmist's vindictive rage against his enemies, we failed to read the words in context. That board is bad. The psalmist's words tap into the promises and the prophets' oracles against the nations, Babylon in particular. In Isaiah thirteen sixteen, the Lord said through Isaiah, their infants shall be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. This is the word of the Lord. He will enact that judgment. Jeremiah 50, 11 through 16, though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage, this is the Lord talking, though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture, nay, like the stallions, your mother shall be utterly shamed, and she who bore you shall be disgraced, behold, she shall be the last among the nations, a wilderness, a dry land and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be in utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds. Set yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her. Spare no arrows for she has sinned against the Lord. See, they've sinned against the Lord. Raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered. Her bulwarks have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her and do as she has done. It is God himself meting out this punishment through human agencies. He goes on, cut off from Babylon the sower and the one who handles the sickle. In the time of harvest, because of the sword of the oppressor, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. In the next chapter, the Lord describes Babylon as his golden cup. He passed around the cup of his wrath to the various nations and he made them drink. It was God working through human means, through human agents to bring about his just end and judging different nations. And unless you think that God is not an equal opportunity punisher, he then brings Babylonian or Babylon around on his own people, Judah, and they're crushed. But he's saying, look, I'm gonna do the same thing, I'm gonna raise up another nation to crush Babylon. It's absolutely critical to see as well that woven throughout Jeremiah's judgment oracles against Babylon, declaring their destruction is the promise of salvation for the people of God. You'll see that in this next passage I'm going to read. I know some of this is hard to stomach, but you need to understand this. Frankly, I think we're a little weak in the knees when it comes to judgment. And if we're, if we're, if we're struggling this morning with this idea that, that, that humanity deserves judgment, then we're going to have a hard time with the cross. Are we not? Where Jesus was hanging naked? And suffered as a sin-bearing substitute? I mean, if we're all so great, that's not necessary. So so listen to how God's salvation is coming through judgment. This This is a powerful theme throughout the whole Bible. It's the gospel. Salvation through judgment. Jeremiah 50, verses 4 through 5. In those days, and at that time declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come... And they shall seek Yahweh their God. They shall ask the way to Zion. This is taking place while he's promising to judge Babylon. What he's doing in his people is this. He's he's bringing them back to himself. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces turned toward it saying, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. That God is working salvation for his people and judgment for their adversaries. Does that sound similar? It's precisely what he did in the Exodus when he brought Israel out of Egypt. He said, let my son, my firstborn son go or I'll crush your firstborn son. Pharaoh says, Yahweh, I don't know that name. And then the Lord said, well, here, let me give you 10 plagues to introduce myself climaxing in the death of all the firstborn in Egypt and that sealed their redemption by faith they smeared the blood over the doorposts so they wouldn't be judged interestingly and this is why I'd recommend when you read Psalms don't just read a Psalm in isolation do you know we're looking at Psalm 137 and it's talking about how God is going to bring judgment on the Babylonians to then save his people In the previous two Psalms, Psalm 135 and Psalm 136, there is an emphasis looking back to how God struck down the firstborn in Egypt. There is a connection between different events in salvation history. The Exodus prefigures salvations to come. This, what's talked about here in Psalm 137 is a new Exodus. God is promising a new Exodus from Babylon, so look here again. Uh, Jeremiah 50, 17 through 20. Israel is hunted. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. And now, at last, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and on his land as I punished the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. In those days, and at that time, declares the Lord, iniquity or sin shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none. And sin in Judah, and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. This is echoing uh, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, the promise of a new covenant. God is bringing salvation through judgment. So, to pray... Blessing on those exacting judgment on their tormentors isn't mere vindictiveness, but it's rather a sensitivity to the promises of God, perhaps still unfulfilled. Fundamentally, it is a recognition that salvation will come through judgment, judgment on their captors, resulting in their salvation. They're pleading with the Lord to keep His promises. Moreover, this vast theme of judgment on the nations is pointing ahead to the final judgment to come. I referenced a moment ago in Jeremiah 51, God calls Babylon his golden cup that he passes around. That's a sub-theme of judgment in the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath. And it comes right into the New Testament. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, is in the garden of Gethsemane. And what does he say in his prayer to the Father? Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. What cup is that? It's the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath that was passed around to the nations, that the psalmist is pleading for God to bring upon Babylon, that cup actually ultimately stops in the garden of Gethsemane on Jesus. All the judgments are pointing to the cross. And Jesus prays in the garden if you're willing father the son of the eternal son of god prays to the father if you're willing let this cup pass from me but not not my will let yours be done and he stares down golgotha he stares down the cross and luke describes him sweating drops of blood do you know in that very same chapter in luke when he's in the upper room with his disciples, he speaks of a different cup. He speaks of the cup of the new covenant in his blood. Paul calls it the cup of blessing. It's the cup we're gonna share in a little bit. You cannot drink the cup of salvation unless you know that that cup was won for you through judgment. Do you, do you understand? It's, it's not just a get out of jail free card, our savior went to the cross, he was hanged naked, he was mocked, he was jeered, he was ridiculed. But upon him, God laid the sins of all who would ever believe. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus became a sin-bearing, curse-bearing, wrath-assuaging substitute for you and for me. He bore the full vent of the infinite wrath of God for us. Jesus takes all the judgment to himself at the cross. He drained the cup of God's wrath. There is salvation in no one else. His dying and rising puts a different cup in our hand, and it positions him at the right hand of the Father to rule and reign until the Father puts all of his enemies as a footstool to him. And because he has drained the cup of judgment, he alone is worthy to judge the nations. And judge them he will. Revelation 19 through 20 describes Jesus coming in judgment. Much like Psalm 2 and Isaiah 11, he will come and he will judge and he will destroy all who are in rebellion to him. That's what the Bible tells us, and it's graphic. He will judge all mankind at the great white throne judgment. And it is this justice, this recompensing of wrongs committed, resolved either at the cross or in eternal judgment that paves the way for perfect peace, that paves the way for the setting up of the new Jerusalem, for the new heavens and the new earth. That is exactly what proceeds. I know we're not all math majors here, but Revelation 19 through 20 comes before Revelation 21 and 22. You can smile. I'm trying to be funny. I know it's a heavy talk, a heavy heavy sermon. But let me just say something because I, I know... We all struggle with the lack of justice in our world, and sometimes we want to see justice for that. And people say, where is God? He's patient. That may not be the answer that you like, but if he gave us our just desserts when they were deserved, then we would not be here this morning he is also patient and a merciful and a gracious God who comes himself to die in our place. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you take nothing else from the sermon this morning, don't miss the fact that God, who will judge the living and the dead, took judgment to himself. You may struggle with the fact that God is both a loving God and a holy and righteous and a judging God. But do not miss the fact that the righteousness that you lack, that he will judge you for, he himself took your judgment. Did you see? The, the judgment that he will dispense, he has received. If, if you're not in Christ, if you're wrestling with Christianity, if you think it's a bunch of bunk, or you're mildly interested, or you just got dragged in here this morning, or you thought there was a tour and you ended up here and whatever, consider the fact that Jesus bore the full vent of God's wrath for you. Before you blow Christianity off, you know there's a lack of justice. You know that people should pay for the things that they're doing, and you struggle with that. And I know it may not be exactly How you would do it, well, thank God, you're not God. But this is the way the Bible says that God has done it and how he resolves righteousness, resolving it through his mercy and his love along with his holiness and his justice. So consider Jesus who died for you. Now I'm gonna conclude with some quick hitters this morning. There's been a lack of application, so now I'm gonna throw it at you quickly, all right? I've got to wipe my forehead once more. I'm setting a record up here. <laughs> is it just me or is it hot in here? <clears throat> so how is Psalm 137 our song? How do we sing it? Should we sing it? Should we pray these imprecatory psalms? Yes and no. I'll start with the no. Should you pray this against your neighbor if your neighbor plays their music loud at night? No! No. Should you pray this like I would argue the psalmist is praying it in light of all of Scripture, in light of understanding the promises of God to judge the nations, to make all things right? Yeah. Aren't we praying for peace? Aren't we praying for justice? In fact... How many here have ever prayed the Lord's prayer? You've prayed an imprecatory prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, if he answers your prayer right now, guess what that means? It means judgment for an untold number of people. You ever pray like Paul, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Oh, Jesus, come back. You've just prayed an imprecatory prayer. You're, you're calling down a curse on an untold number of people who don't know Jesus, if you pray like that. I don't know if you knew that, but well, most of us raised our hand to praying the Lord's Prayer, so you, you're already praying this way. But a couple of quick hitters. This is not the psalmist, nor is it us taking matters into our own hands. Implication is not retaliation. It's not a vendetta. It's not individual, one verse one. It's also measured, asking God to remember the offending party according to their deeds is not asking for a more extreme judgment. If somebody has hurt you, if they've wronged, against, wronged you and sinned against you and, you, and you pray, God, judge them. Well, if that person's in Christ, God's already judged their sin. So you need to reckon with that. Um, if they're not in Christ, what usually happens to me when I'm wanting justice, then if I'm really thinking clearly about the justice that God would give them, then I start praying for their salvation because they're just as blind and stupid as I was before I became a Christian, and they just need Jesus, okay? Third, Christ drank the bitter cup of God's wrath reserved for us. I can't get around that, won't get around it. So as you think about this, we're always thinking about what Jesus did for us. Fourth, it is... To Christ alone to judge and deal out punishment. Fifth, I got ahead of myself a moment ago. If you've prayed the Lord's Prayer, you're already praying an imprecatory prayer. Sixth, it is right for us to long for a rightly ordered world. Christian, it is right for you to long for God to put everything right. Absolutely. Despite the judgment that it will bring on those outside of Christ. Not because we long for their judgment, but because we long to be with our Savior. Seventh, let's remember Christ's words on the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And finally, if you're like me, then praying this way puts you in a great deal of tension. You long for the kingdom, right? You should. If you're a Christian, you should long for the kingdom to come. But you love many who are even now outside of Christ. And you know that if Christ returned, it would mean their death eternally. So may our longing for the kingdom fuel our openness, our boldness, our willingness to share the glorious good news of Jesus Christ so that they can repent and believe. With the psalmist, we must sing in hope of the glory of God. Let us entrust all judgment and justice ultimately to him who is judged who was judged for us and will judge the living and the dead. And finally, let us live in exile. We are in exile. We're not home yet. This little hour and a half might be a little bit longer this morning. I have no idea how long I've gone. Might be a little bit longer this morning. This is a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. That's what gathering together as the church is. If you read what the Bible says about the local church, it is glorious. It is the display of his glory. There is the presence of God when we gather corporately that isn't quite there when you're just alone in your prayer closet reading the Bible, right? This is a foretaste of what is to come. Nevertheless, we're still in exile. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims on a journey to the celestial city, and we're not there yet. So let us live in exile and let us long for the new Jerusalem. Gathering, singing, praying, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hard passages like this that make us search our Bibles and try to put things together. God, I hope that's true this morning. I hope that there's more light and clarity on your judgment as a result of this sermon and not um, confusion. God, help us to see clearly how Jesus is our hero, is our victor, is our savior, is our Lord. And I pray this morning for those who are outside of him that you would be stirring and moving their hearts to believe on him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.